Well, good morning. I'm Brian Legg. I'm part of our lead pastor team. Glad you're here today. I love how he looks at the old guy to expect me to remember something when he can't remember what he's going to say. That's not going to work so well. Well, I hope all of you have plugged into the F260 reading plan over the last couple weeks, and I hope you're getting as much out of it as I am. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I'm noticing is it seems like I'm catching a lot of little details, things that I read through that I've probably read a hundred times and I just haven't seen or I'm seeing them in a fresh way and it's, it's almost like it's for the first time that you're going through it. And maybe some of you are having that same experience. Isn't it cool how God works that way? He reveals more of himself to you through his word as you dig deeper into it and you begin to grow in that relationship. And it's not that his word is changing, it's just that our understanding is changing and his revelation is ever unfolding to us as we grow you know, I guess this would be one of those good times to confess to you, and a lot of you have probably heard me say stuff like this before, but you know, I'm really bad about just kind of reading my Bible to check the box a lot of times, especially you get into reading plans like this, and you're just going through and you're making sure you do the plan, reading through it, getting the information, pulling it out, but a lot of times I don't stop to really think about what is God saying to me in all that? How is he speaking? How is he, what should I be processing in all this? And I just fall into that trap of of doing the reading plan just to follow the directions and say that, yeah, I did it, I did my reading today, but not really investing in the relationship. You know, I'm, uh, I'm very task-oriented, and a lot of people would even say I'm a little bit OCD, or maybe a whole lot. Um, if you were here last night, we had an event in the building, and I was helping set up chairs afterwards, and I'm walking the aisles, because if the chairs are crooked, it's going to drive me crazy when I stand up here the next morning. So just a little bit of that OCD tendency in me. Anyway, one of the things that I've learned over the past few years when I've discovered these kinds of things about myself is for me when I do a reading plan it helps me tremendously to use something like version, where it has the audio Bible portion in it and I can listen to someone else read the Bible at the same time I'm following along in my paper Bible. So I'm getting the audio and I'm getting the visual and I'm listening to it and reading it and what it does is it forces me to slow down. It forces me instead of just skimming across words and reading it for what it is to really think about what's being said, what's there. There's somebody reading it. They've got inflection in their voice. They're telling you a story, taking you on a journey. It makes you think a lot more about it. Another thing that I've learned, and you've probably seen this if you've read either growing up or if you're involved in the Foundations Journal that we're doing along with F260, but one of the very important things he says or emphasizes is that every day when you start your reading, start with just a simple prayer that says, God, open my eyes to see what you want me to see today. Help me to be open to what you want to say to me. And he especially emphasizes David's prayer from Psalm 119, verse 18. It says, open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instruction. That sounds so simple, but it is a big, big deal. And I have found that if I'll just either recite that verse or say a, a similar prayer, that it really unlocks my heart and mind to what God's trying to say to me. And again, what's neat about it is it seems like it's been obscure references that God's bringing to my mind as I read through things here lately. In fact, I've been highlighting things that I look at and I go, a year from now, I'm going to go back and look at what I highlighted and wondered, what in the world was I thinking? Why did I highlight that verse? It doesn't seem to have any significance, but it was just something that God brought out in that moment as I was reading through it. And one last thing, let me encourage you to do the journaling with the F260 plan. I'll be the first to admit I am not a journaler. I don't like to write. I don't like to journal. I don't like the concept of it. I don't have time to write, which is probably why it's so important that I journal, because what it does is make me slow down. It makes me think about what I'm reading, process that differently. I end up writing most of my prayers out in my journal, and I love this here format that we're using. But the big thing is it makes it relational with God instead of just being something that you're checking the box and running through. And that's the whole point of the reading plan. So enough coaching about F260 and what to do with it. Let's dig into some stuff from this week's reading. As Brandon told you a minute ago, we just finished week two this past week. 
And if you're reading along with us, you know, we started the week at the very end of Job, and it's the passage where God is speaking to Job, and really God is just declaring his might and his majesty and telling Job all the things about who he is and what he's created and what he's done and how powerful he is, and you find Job just kind of blown away. He's just standing there realizing, really, I'm nothing. And it helps him to take a humble approach as he looks at God and discovers some of those things. And then as you kept reading in the plan, we dove back into Genesis and began to walk through the story of Abraham. And just, you know, interesting side note, do you have any idea how hard it is to come up with a message on a Sunday morning out of all this reading? Because I had like 14 things running around in my head this week that I could have preached on, and I know most of you can barely make it through one of my messages, so I figured I better narrow it down and dial it in a little bit. So we're going to try to stay focused, so here we go. Genesis chapter 16, turn with me if you will, or or go there on your device. Genesis chapter 16, we're going to be starting in verse 1. It's the story of Abram and Sarai, and then there's... Hagar, the servant, with Abraham, and then there's their son, Ishmael, and yes, this is going to get a little bit complicated as we dig through it, you'll see. So I want to lay the groundwork, so to speak, with the heart of the story, and then we'll go back and look at some details that you may or may not have noticed when you read through it this week, but I think they have a huge impact on the story. Genesis Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened ten years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, and now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Now, just being honest, I read through this this past week, and I kind of laughed at this point. This is like the Jerry Springer show of the Old Testament, isn't it? I mean, stop and think about this for a moment. You're going to give your servant to your husband to have a baby with her, and then you're going to get upset over that happening. This has disaster written all over it. Abram, what were you thinking? But see, isn't that how sin is? It looks great on the front end. It seems entertaining or satisfying in so many different ways, but there's always difficult consequences that we don't see or don't pay any attention to until it's too late. I heard somebody one time describe sin kind of like a pharmaceutical commercial. You know how you're watching TV and that ad pops up for some medicine and they take about five, maybe ten seconds to tell you this is the best medicine ever to do this. And then they spend the whole rest of the commercial, 20, 30, 40 seconds, telling you all the side effects and legal disclaimers and that this could happen and it's like, you know, your limbs can fall off and you can have ever headaches and permanent brain injuries and all this stuff and that's just to fix the pain in your knee. Why would you take that medicine when it does all of that stuff? But with sin... It's like we get those first 10 seconds and we see the great thing that it's going to do and nobody ever tells us all the side effects. Nobody gives all the legal disclaimers. You don't realize all the consequences that are going to come with that until it's too late. You've already taken the drug. It's already in your system. Now what? Now you're just facing the consequences. See, in just this one passage, there are multiple issues of sin that's involved in the decisions being made. But I don't think that Abram or Sarai, either one, are stopping to think about any of the implications of what they're doing. They're just trying to solve what they see as a problem. So let's put this passage in a little bit of context. Ten years before this, when Abram settled in Canaan, you saw that in verse 3, God had come to Abram and he made a promise to him 
that he would be the father of a great nation and that he would receive many blessings and that he would be a blessing to many others. And if we're going to jump into that story here in just one sec, but, but something you've got to understand here is Abram's heritage, his inheritance, or maybe think about it about his lineage. That was a big, big deal back then. I mean, we think about the fact that, yeah, our name passes on through our children and that kind of thing, but I don't think we get the concept of heritage the way they did. If you didn't have a son, that was a big, big deal. They had to have that son to pass that inheritance to and have that lineage carry on. You needed the son to be your heir. So read with me, starting in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. So the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that's a passage that we look at as this great example of faith, and it really is. In fact, it's referred to in Hebrews 11, which we know is the great hall of faith in the Bible. And God asks Abram in this moment to pick up and move to the place that he will show him. Doesn't even tell him where he's going to go. Just says, leave everything, leave your family, leave your stuff, go to where I'll show you. And Abram goes, and it starts this whole story. It launches it off. But go back to Genesis 16 with me. So here we are ten years later. And Abram's received this promise from God, but yet he still hasn't had a child. It appears that his wife Sarai is barren. And now I want you to keep in mind that we just read in Genesis 12 that when Abram received that promise from God, he was 75 years old. Now if you go a couple chapters forward, actually one chapter forward from here in 17, we find out that, just doing a little simple math, Sarai was 10 years younger than Abraham, or than Abram. So Abram's 75 when he receives the promise, meaning Sarai is 65. Now, think about that. Ladies, how many of you at the age of 65 would like to find out that you're pregnant and going to have another child? No takers? Come on. How about 10 years later at 75? Don't you want to start all over with your family at 75? But that's where they are. Here's the context. 10 years later at 75 years old, still no children. How in the world is God's promise going to be fulfilled? I mean, can you understand why they might be struggling to have faith in this moment that God's going to follow through? Here we are, Abram at 85, Sarai 75, no kids, trying to understand how God's going to bless them and make Abram into this great nation when he doesn't even have any descendants. Now, I want you to keep in mind that just one chapter back in 15, God confirms that promise with much more specific detail involving Abraham having a son. And I want to read that to you, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus will be a, of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Now think about that. This is God confirming the promise. Now he's spelling it out in black and white. You're going to have a son. You're not going to give your stuff to your servant. You're going to have a son who will be your heir. And then he goes even further to go, go outside, look up in the clear sky, look at all the stars that you can see. That's how many descendants you're going to have. That's how big your family's going to be. That's a big family. That's huge. 
And Abram comes into this passage going, I'm 85, she's 75. How's that even possible? How's this going to happen? God, how are you going to show up? And so what do they do? They begin to take things into their own hands because God hasn't shown up. And so Sarai looks around at where they're living. And she looks at what do other people do as they're facing this kind of thing. And she begins to realize that the Canaanites that they're living among, who, by the way, are not following God, they follow their own gods and they follow their own customs, their own traditions. And she looks at them and realizes, well, when the wife is barren and can't produce an heir for the husband, then the husband sleeps with one of the servants so that he can have an heir. And that's how they fix it. Well, let's do that, right? So Sarai comes to Abram with the plan that she's taken from the Canaanites, presents it to him. Let me give you my servant from Egypt, and maybe she can have a baby for us so that you have an heir. Now, pause there for a moment. And I want to point out a couple of obscure obscure details that you can pick up from the story here that are pretty important, at least from my perspective. We know the name of the servant that she's referring to as Hagar because the author of Genesis tells us that. But have you noticed that neither Abram or Sarai ever call her by name in the passage as they go through it? She's only referred to as a servant. This girl basically is a piece of property for them. She's their slave. She was just a servant. They could do with her as they pleased. She wasn't given the option of becoming Abram's wife. There was nothing talked about of a love relationship or any kind of interest or anything going on that you might think about a marriage like that. It just tells us that Sarai presented her to her husband Abram slept with her. She became pregnant. Now, if Abram and Sarai don't even call her by name, have you ever stopped to wonder why Scripture is so specific to tell us that she was of Egyptian descent? Why does that detail even matter? Here's their servant that they don't even call by name, but yet it tells us specifically she was Egyptian. One of these things that's easy to read across and not think anything of, but if you go back to Genesis 12, Right after the promise I just read read to you, and you keep going in the story, you realize that Abram moved his family to Egypt because there was a severe famine in the land at the time. And I want you to pick up this story and see how this unfolds, starting in verse 10 of chapter 12. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt where he lived as a foreigner. As he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him, and then we can have her. So please tell them that you are my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. And sure enough, when Abram arrived in in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarai's beauty. When the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and Sarai was taken into his palace. Then Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her. Sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. What have you done to me, he demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and get out of here. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them, and he sent Abram out of the country along with his wife and all of his possessions. I'm telling you, Jerry Springer, the Old Testament, right here. Abram just basically prostituted his own wife. And he did it to save his own hide. That's the only way you can put it. That's my redneck version, I guess. But he allowed Pharaoh to take her as his wife. And not only did it save Abram, but he got all kinds of stuff out of it. Pharaoh sends him all these gifts, like dowry kind of stuff. 
Many gifts of livestock and what else? And servants. Pay attention to that. How do you think that Hagar came to be part of Abram's household? It doesn't put it in black and white, but I'd argue that there's probably a 99.9% chance that Hagar was given to Abram as a gift for his wife, who Pharaoh thought was his sister, that he took into the palace. Now put that in context. The story doesn't spell it out exactly, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and just say that Abram sinned in that moment. You think? You, you tell somebody that your wife is actually your sister, you let them sleep with your wife because they think that she's your sister, because you want to make sure that you're safe and you don't trust God enough to take care of you in that moment? doesn't seem like he's exactly being the protector that Stivey talked to us about last week, is he? Instead of trusting God to take care of him, he took matters into his own hands and he brought disgrace upon his own family. He brought disgrace upon Pharaoh's family. And now he has this servant girl in his household that his wife's bringing to him and saying, here, have a child with her so that you can have a descendant because God hasn't shown up yet. So you could argue that Abram's sin in Genesis 12 not only had immediate consequences that he had to deal with, but it also opened the door for more sin to occur here in Genesis 16 as we read through this passage now that he's sleeping with Hagar in order to have a child. And just a side note, and I'm not going to spend any time here, but have you found the interesting parallels in this story and the story we read last week of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve? You see some of the things that seem the same? You know, Sarai feels like God is holding something back from them because they've not been able to have a son. Just like Eve felt like God was holding something back with the tree of knowledge of, of good and evil. You know, Sarai takes a plan to her husband to fix this whole withholding thing, just like Eve took the fruit to Adam. Abram readily accepts the plans, and he takes Hagar as his wife, just like Adam readily ate the fruit. Interesting how the father of our Jewish nation is facing the same sin struggle as the father of human creation, Adam. So Abram sleeps with Hagar, she gets pregnant, and then all of a sudden she starts to show contempt to Sarai. You think? I mean, what did you expect to happen? You allow your servant to come sleep with your husband, she gets pregnant, you're barren, and Abram, not once did you think that she's going to be jealous or insecure or have any kind of issues or this is going to be bad for your marriage. Hmm, seems like somebody should have thought about the details, right? But this is how sin is. We don't see the consequences of our sin until it's too late. And this is a perfect example. And I have to kind of laugh a little when I read Sarai's response. This is all your fault, Abram. Really? It's all your fault. I mean, never mind that I came up with the plan and I brought her to you and presented her to you, but it's all your fault. And isn't that how sin is too? Don't we always pass the blame no matter what's happened? It's always somebody else's fault. But Eve gave me the fruit. But the serpent convinced me to eat it. But you're the one that slept with her. Always blame. And don't forget that we started this passage with her blaming God in the first place. God, you haven't given us a son. You made this promise, but you haven't followed through. So we're going to take matters into our own hands and do our thing. And then she goes on to basically say, we'll let God judge this and he will determine who did wrong here, you or me. Now that's interesting to me. 
Especially coming out of last week's teaching where Stivey talked in such detail about the encounter in the garden. Because we're quick to blame Eve because she offered that fruit to Adam. Just like I'm sure we're quick to blame Sarai because she's the one who brought this plan and presented Hagar to Abram. But what responsibility does Abram have in this? See, he's the spiritual leader of his family. His household. He should have protected his family in this moment. He knew that the practice that Sarai was introducing was pagan and it was not of God. He knew it was sin. She was looking around at what his culture doing. Sound interesting? Notice anything else that happens that way? We look around at what is everybody else doing instead of looking at what God asks of us? How can we fix this problem? She looked around at what culture was doing, and she brought this idea. He knew it was wrong to take another wife. He knew that God had been faithful to him every step along the way, and yet in that moment he didn't trust. He took matters into his own hands to help God out. Newsflash, I don't think God needs our help. And I could easily argue that there's sin on both sides here. Both Abram and Sarai abandoned their trust and their faith in God in this specific moment, and they tried to fix it on their own. You ever found yourself in that situation? You feel like God said something to you, but you aren't seeing it come to pass, and you suddenly feel the urge to just make something happen. Sometimes we just need to wait on God. But the truth is, I'm there all the time. I'm a fixer by nature. Everything in me is constantly asking that question. How can I fix that? How can I make that better? How can I do something to improve that? If you had been here first service, we had a problem with the mic when Donna came up to talk, and it was cracking and popping all over the place. I was all the way back here in the the war room, and I come running out so I can fix the mic because it's in my nature. Wasn't my job, wasn't my responsibility, wasn't something I needed to do, but I like to fix things. And sometimes we just need to wait on God. And you would think that I would have learned that by now, but I'm kind of stubborn. In my personal life with my family, and especially as a pastor here at TBA, it seems like over and over and over that I have tried to get ahead of God and his timing, and it has never gone well for me or for those around me. It's frustrating, it's discouraging, it's difficult, because basically I'm fighting God in those moments. Maybe you've been there, felt that. But see, when God shows up and he makes something happen in his timing, it's unbelievable how perfect it really is. You know, there are a couple examples that come to mind for me. One of them is our hub house in Highland City. I don't know how many of you know all of the backstory of that, but that hub house was something that God laid on our hearts years ago. And we spent a couple years praying and seeking, trying to figure out how to buy that piece of property and move in to do ministry there. We were convinced that God had called us to that, that he had opened that door, that that was something that was going to happen. It was a piece of our vision. And as our staff and our ministry directors were praying together, I was doing the legwork of that, of of running and and beating on doors and calling real estate agents. And the the one particular agent that's dealing with that house, she probably hates me because I call her at least once a week for two years. I drove her crazy It's kind of like the Matthew passage where it says, keep knocking, except I wasn't just knocking. I was like beating the door down instead of waiting for God to respond. And a number of times as we walked that journey, I had people say to me, it's just not God's timing yet. Wait, and he'll show up. And I'd go, yeah, you're right. And I'd keep knocking and keep beating on the door. And finally, I got to a point where, I hate to admit this, but I didn't quit calling because it was the right thing to do or because I was waiting on God's timing. I quit calling because I was so frustrated over the process, I just almost gave up. And we went like two months with no communication, and out of the blue, I got a phone call from her. 
And she said, hey, you know that house you've been asking about in Highland City? Guess what? The contract fell through. The price has dropped. I think they're in a place that they'll take an offer from you now. We took all of about 24 hours to pray about that together and to confirm that, yes, that's what God's asking us to do. Our ministry directors and our staff made a decision to put a down payment, by the way, that was non-refundable. So we took a huge risk of faith there, and we made the commitment that we were going to come to the church and make the agreement to pay in cash. We were not going to go into debt to buy this house because God was going to provide it. Came to the church that Sunday. Had to raise $75,000. We raised way more than $75,000 in one Sunday. Gave you all of a week to liquidate all your assets and bring them to church, right? <laughs> Works really well. We raised over $75,000. I think we had almost $30,000 that we were able to set aside in a designated fund to put towards future development of that property. God's timing is always perfect. Even when we're fighting and trying to do it our way, His timing is perfect talk about future investment, it wasn't very long after we bought that property that school board donated, donated two modular buildings for us to put on the property to, to keep expanding the ministry and keep moving along with what we were doing. And we were so excited. We got the, the buildings moved in. We, we stored them there and, and got everything set up. And we began the process with the county of getting permits so we could fix them up and hook them up and get everything rolling. And you probably know a lot of that story from there. We went for almost two years battling back and forth with the county, trying to figure everything out and get all the details in place. And I mean, it was just one problem after another, after another. Some of it was on our end. Some of it was on their end. It doesn't really matter. We just fought for two years to try to work it out. Now, keep in mind, I just came through that two-year journey to get the house where I should have experienced how God's timing works. Even had people saying in those moments, this is another one of those things. You just got to let it be God's timing. It'll all work at the right time. I kept fighting, kept pushing. I'm stubborn. About a month ago, and this, well, a couple months ago at a family gathering, somebody brought up, have we ever thought about talking to Joe and Jody Rada? you know, run Rada Construction to go to our church? Joe's one of our sound guys and leads worship occasionally, and they're involved. And no, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, they, they do big metal buildings. They don't do modulars. Go and have a conversation. They get involved. They not only help us get the permit pulled, they've been involved in running the project, and they have gotten probably 75% of the work donated on the project. So... Not only is it coming together 10 times faster than I would have anticipated, but it's coming together a lot cheaper than we anticipated as well, and it's hopefully going to leave us some funds to be able to invest in some more things there in the community and the ministry that's going on. God's timing is always perfect. Even when we try to take matters into our own hands, it never goes well. And I think you see that clearly in Abram's story. And you're going to read next week about how God's perfect plan comes together for Abram and Sarai. And she has a child, a son, at the age of 90. Now, that's a miracle where God showed up. And you've got to understand that his plan and his timing is perfect in that moment. At the age of 90, she has a son. But see, unfortunately, the passage that we've dug in today, it has tremendous consequences. Not only were there problems at home with Sarah, mis Sarah mistreated Hagar, who ran away, but even as Abram brought her back into the household and named their son, 
There were long-term consequences for that sin. As you read on in chapter 16, Hagar, after running away because Sarai was mistreating her, encountered an angel of the Lord, it tells us, which is most commonly thought to be a Christophany. A Christophany is an encounter where Jesus is seen pre-incarnate in the Bible. So here's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ to Hagar, and he speaks to her in this way, starting in verse 11. And the angel also said, You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Now, you're probably already aware of this, but it's from Ishmael, the son of Abram, conceived in sin, that many of our Arab nations have descended from. And specifically, the religion of Islam was birthed from Muhammad, who was a direct descendant of Ishmael. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details of what that means or the political stuff. None of that matters right now. What I want to say to you is this. One simple decision to take matters into his own hands rather than trusting God can literally have eternal consequences, both physical and spiritual. Listening to God's voice and putting our faith to action by walking in obedience and trusting his plan and his timing are critical. Not just for our lives, but for the lives of everyone around us and for future generations to come. Stavi challenged us as men last week to be the leaders and the protectors of our wives and our children. And that's huge. Men, we have the responsibility to disciple our families. To love them like Christ as a servant that's willing to sacrifice our own lives for them. But I want you to hear this clearly, not just physically, but also spiritually. See, for most guys, it's pretty easy to go, oh yeah, I love my kids. I'll lay down my life for my kids. I love my wife. I'll lay down my life for her. I'll protect them no matter what. But what about spiritually? Will you lay down your dreams and your plans so that God's dreams and plans can have priority in your family? Will you lay down all of your desires and the things that you think you want to accomplish in order to embrace what God's best is for you? Are you willing to sacrifice that? See, it means giving up our plans and dreams in order to walk in obedience to God's perfect plans for our families. So here's the big picture that I want you to see today. And I think this story so accurately depicts this for us. Abram, the father of not only the Jewish nation, but of our faith, was far from being perfect. I've shown you just a few things today, but man, if you dig into this story, you can go back to moment after moment after moment where Abram failed to fully trust God or he failed to, to, to have that kind of faith that he needed to have or he made a sinful choice. And each of those moments built into the next story and there were long-lasting impacts from the decisions that he made. But don't get stuck there because you can also see that when you step back and look at the big picture of Abram's life, he was a great man of faith. Hebrews 11 states that so clearly. It, it, he's one of the first people that talks about, about how his faith founded who we are in Christ. He was a great man of faith. And it shows us a picture of God's redemption through the life of Abram. How God brings great things even from the failures that Abram experiences. Here's what we need to understand. There are lasting and painful consequences of sin both physically and spiritually, but there's also beauty and majesty and hope found in God's grace and redemption. If you're like me, you can read this story and you can see all kinds of parallels between Abram's story and your own. 
Maybe not the exact details, or at least I hope not the exact details. I mean, I hope you wives are not bringing home your servant girl to your husband's marriage bed. That, that's just a little out there. But I, get, I guarantee you can look at your own lives and you can see the mistakes that have been made. You can see the moments that you've doubted. You can see the moments that you haven't trusted in God's plan or in his timing. You can probably see the consequences of the sinful decisions that you've made along the way and the moments that you've fallen on your face and you failed. So let this story serve as that reminder that God's plan and God's timing is always perfect. Even when we can't see or understand. Even when you're 85 and he still hasn't given you a son, but he's promised. Let this story be an anchor point for your faith and for your trust in God to grow. And make the commitment today that you'll walk forward in trust and obedience, allowing your life to follow God's timeline instead of yours. Ben, you guys come on up. Tonight at Family Gathering, one of the things we're going to be exploring is what it looks like to actually hear from God. You know, how do we put ourselves in a place to really listen and understand what God's saying to us so that we can hold on to that and trust him? You know, it's, it's one of those things where it's one thing to say, I want to have trust and I want to have faith. But if we're not actually hearing from God, how are we going to have trust and faith in those moments? We have to hear those promises and know those things that he's saying to us. And I would just really encourage you to be a part of tonight's family gathering. Even if you've never come before, this is a great opportunity where we pray together, we seek God's agenda together for our church family and where we're going. And it's an opportunity for us as the body of Christ to come together and share what God's doing in our hearts and how that plays out here at TBA. On top of that, you get food out of it tonight. So bring a covered dish and a share in some of the fun. It's tonight at five. For this morning, if you would like to talk with somebody or pray with somebody about some of the things we've been discussing about God's timing or having faith and trust in that, I'd love to talk with you more. Tim and Joni are back here at Next Steps. I would encourage you, come back to Next Steps and talk to one of us. We would love to help you take the next step on your journey. Let's take a moment, if you will, to stand with me. We're going to pray, and then the band's going to come and play. And I would just encourage you to allow God to speak to your heart in this moment. Let's pray. God, thank you again for how... You speak to each of us through your word, how you use stories like Abram's to remind us of your faithfulness and to remind us of the power of your redemption and your grace and your love for all of us. But God, also to help us to step back and and take a very real-life picture of our own frailty, of our own failures, of our own falling short. God, none of us are perfect. We're all broken. We all make choices that have painful consequences, sometimes more than others. But God, even in those moments, you still are reaching down, seeking relationship with us. You're wanting to redeem, wanting to restore, wanting to bring healing. We just simply have to reach out in faith and trust you. So help us to grow in our trust and our faith this morning. Help us to have hearts and minds that are unlocked and ready for you to speak to us. Use this time to do what you want to do. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.